So this morning we'll look at James in one verse, verse 13. So let's begin our time by reading from God's word. Would you look at your Bibles and read with me James chapter two and verse 13. God's word says this. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word. Well, everyone loves an aphorism, those pithy, witty, little expressions that boil down a truth into a few memorable words. You know, they're used by epoch-shaping thinkers, like Nietzsche, who famously said, what doesn't kill me makes me stronger. Or our own Thomas Jefferson, who, in that iconic expression, said, the price of freedom is eternal vigilance. But it's not just famous thinkers who use aphorisms, parents every day and they're parenting their children use these expressions. How many times have you heard a parent say to their kid, if you lie down with dogs, you wake up with fleas? Or how many of us have heard a mother chide her teenage son with something along the lines of, you know son, cleanliness is next to godliness. We love aphorisms. But of course, the greatest aphorist of all time was none other than the Lord Jesus himself. In fact, many of the most famous aphorisms have been falsely attributed to other historical figures, but in fact find their origin in the words of Jesus. I would love if someone would contact history publishers and tell them to stop attributing a house divided against itself cannot fall to Abraham Lincoln. I love Abraham Lincoln. I was raised in the land of Lincoln. I, I went to an undergrad where I walked past a Lincoln statue every day and I blessed it on my way. And yet his best lines weren't original to him, they come from our Lord, the greatest wordsmith who ever lived. And one of his best students was his little brother, the author of this letter, James. And in James chapter two, verse 13, in his typical laconic style, James boils down for us the truth of the gospel into two little aphorisms, two memorable statements that give us the two sides of the coin of gospel truth. And so this morning, what I wanna do is look at this one verse, the two sides of the gospel with you and I'll I'll walk through them with you under two headings. First, James shows us an unmerciful judgment. And secondly, he takes us to a merciful judge. And so I wanna look at this verse under those two headings, the unmerciful judgment and the merciful judge in James 2.13. First, notice the unmerciful judgment. Look in your Bibles at verse 13. The first thing that you notice is the first expression. It says, for judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And the first thing to take notice of is this little connecting word, for. It takes us back to what preceded. In fact, particularly the verses that Jesse walked through with us last week, beginning in verse 10. Let me briefly remind you of those. Look in your Bibles at James 2, verse 10, where James says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. James tells us that if you break the law, even at one point, you make yourself a lawbreaker. It doesn't matter what part of the law you break because the law is one, because the law flows from a God who is one. And the law is merely a reflection. It flows from the very character of God. So no matter what part of the law you break, you're fundamentally always breaking the law of God. In other words, you're sinning against the same God. Therefore, guilty. The law then functions to condemn us. 
In our natural state, the law stands over us as our judge to crush us and show us the reality of our guilt before a holy God so that we might flee to Christ. And when we do, when we come to Christ with two empty hands of repentant faith and take hold of Him, God unites our life to Jesus Christ so that we stand in Him having a Savior who has died in our place to bear and then remove the judgment that the law demands for our sins. Moreover, we stand in a Savior who lived a perfect life on our our account so that He can clothe us in the perfect righteousness that law requires and we can stand before God blameless. And because this Savior is resurrected to new life, we stand in Him likewise, partaking in new resurrection life. That's what we get in Christ. But then James carries forward his argument in verse 12 and says, if that's you, if you stand in Christ, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. When you come into Jesus Christ, the law no longer stands over you to judge you because Christ has fulfilled it on your behalf. Rather, the law is now placed under you as a path upon which to walk, the path by which you honor and please the Lord who loved you and gave himself for you. But then James is quick to follow up with a warning in verse 13. You must walk on this path. If you are in Christ, your sins are forgiven, wrath is removed, you are 100% righteous before God, and you're placed on this path of the law of Christian liberty, and now you must walk on that path because, verse 13, judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. In other words, James is giving us a warning. We might ask a couple words about this warning. First, we might just ask a simple question. What judgment are you talking about, James? Clearly in the context, I mean, you just referred to a future final judgment when at the culmination of our lives, God holds us accountable for everything that we have done in the body. Clearly, this warning pertains to the final judgment when God holds us accountable at the culmination of our lives, God's full final judgment. But then we might ask, to whom is this warning directed? Because Scripture tells us there are two kinds of people who will be judged. There are two kinds of judgment. There's a judgment for believers. The scripture clearly tells us believers will be judged. Paul teaches us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, among other texts, that at the culmination of a believer's life, they'll be judged for everything they've done in the body. And in 1 Corinthians in chapter 4, Paul tells us that everything we have done that had no eternal value will be burned up like chaff in a flame. But anything we've done that had eternal value, God will look upon and out of his grace and mercy will render to us a reward for our faithfulness to him. There's another judgment, a judgment rendered to the unbeliever, someone who stands outside of Christ. That person, in their judgment, will be condemned to an eternal sentence wherein they will pay the full penalty for their sins against God. Now, out of those two judgments, I ask you the question, which of those is a judgment without mercy? Clearly, what James is doing in this text is he's ushering a solemn warning to anyone who claims that they belong to Christ, the law is no longer standing over me to judge me, but now is under me as a path to guide me, and yet they don't walk on that path. They don't live in accordance with the law of liberty. They don't love God. They don't love their neighbor. They don't love their enemy. They don't visit the widows and the orphans and the migrants. They don't show their faith without favoritism. 
They don't render mercy as a characteristic description of their lives. James speaks to that person and issues a solemn warning that if you claim to be in Christ and yet don't live a life characterized by mercy, you're not on the path of the law of liberty headed for more mercy. You're on a different path, a path Jesus describes as the broad path that leads to eternal destruction and unmerciful judgment. You know, Jesus himself really illustrates this concept for us. In fact, throughout all of James's letter, he's refashioning and recasting the same things that he heard from his brother. And so in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus tells us a parable we know well as the parable of the unmerciful servant that illustrates this concept quite clearly. In that parable, Jesus tells of a man who had accrued a debt of 10,000 talents to his master. And a talent was a measure of 20 years wages. So in the parable, this man owes his master 200,000 years of wages. It's an incalculable amount. No one can ever repay that. And so his master, as this man stands before him, orders that all his things be, be sold and the master, the, rather the man and his family be sold into debtor's prison so that at least he can make some return on this. Well, the man upon hearing this news falls on his knees and pleads with the master to have mercy. And the master, in fact, does respond with mercy. He forgives the man his debt and sends him out free. But then as soon as that man leaves the presence of his master he finds a fellow worker who happened to owe him a debt. Jesus says the debt was 100 denarii, and a denarii is a full day's wage. And so this is not a guy who lost a $20 wager on the basketball game last Friday. This is a man who owes a significant amount of money, 100 days' wages. And so this man would like to get a return. And so he grabs the man and says, pay what you owe. And the fellow worker says, I can't, give me time and I'll pay you back. And the man doesn't want to wait. And so he shakes him and chokes him and says, pay what you owe. Witnesses see this and are disturbed, and so they run to report to the master, and upon hearing this report, he summons the man and then says to him, you wicked servant, I forgave your debt. Should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And then Jesus says the master in his anger through that man to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, which could never be paid. That is, he threw him into jail forever. Then Jesus concludes this little parable with this line. Matthew 18, 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from the heart. Jesus is issuing the same solemn warning that anyone who claims to have entered into a relationship with him to have received mercy from God, but then does not live a life characterized by extending mercy to others, betrays with his life that what he says with his mouth isn't isn't real. And you know, one of the most challenging things I think about this text is that did you notice that when the man in the parable left the presence of his master and went and found his fellow laborer who owed him money, and then he demanded that he pay what he was owed, he did not do anything that would be considered before the law unjust. It was well within his legal rights to demand that this man make good on his debt. It was well within his legal rights to throw that man into debtor's jail until the debt be repaid. 
He did nothing that could be considered unjust before the law. He was acting justly. And Jesus says, that's not what God requires. What God requires, not first and foremost, is to turn around and to exercise our rights and to assert our rights first and foremost, but first and foremost to think as people who have received mercy. According to this parable, the gospel, and according to everything the gospel teaches us, we don't receive justice from God in the gospel. If we receive justice from God, we would be condemned because we owe to God a debt we could never repay. The gospel is this message that God has made a way to extend mercy to his people through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. If you come to know Christ, your sins are blotted out. The justice you deserve is satisfied in your substitute. And now you receive a deluge of mercy that you don't deserve. Upon receiving this mercy, the response will be to go out the door and extend mercy to others to live a life on the path of the law of liberty, loving God, loving neighbor, loving enemies, visiting widows and orphans, exercising your faith without favoritism, forgiving others from your heart, extending mercy. That's the evidence that you've genuinely tasted the mercy of God, that you've really understood the gospel, that your life is vitally, spiritually, genuinely united to Jesus Christ, the giver of mercy. And Jesus says this himself famously in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Upon receiving mercy from God, that law that stands over you is no longer your judge. Christ satisfies it on your behalf. And now it's placed under you as a path to guide your life. And you walk on that path extending mercy to others. It's the evidence that testifies to the reality of your conversion. That you are walking on a path that leads to everlasting mercy. That's the warning that James gives us in his first little phrase here. You know, if you're tracking with what James is saying and you're thinking about your own life, at some point, there's gonna be another question that rises in your heart. At some point, you're gonna ask yourself something like, okay, mercy I extend to others validates my profession of faith, So then, how much? How much mercy do I need to extend? How many deeds of mercy do I have to perform in order to feel confident that I've genuinely experienced the mercy of God, escaped the judgment I deserve, and am walking on the path of the law of liberty into the everlasting arms? beyond quantitatively how many works do I need to do, you could ask yourself qualitatively, how sincere do I have to be? What if they're done out of selfishness? What if they're done just for me and not genuinely for the person? And you see how endlessly you could spiral down and down and down as you gaze into the navel of your own sincerity of good works. How can I be confident that I'm genuinely walking on the path of the law of liberty into the mercy of God forever? Well, if that's the question you want to ask yourself, there is a biblical answer for you. And James wants to answer it with his second little aphorism. So I want to turn to that now. We've seen the merciless judgment. But upon hearing that, James now wants to turn our attention to the merciful judge. The merciful judge. So look down at your Bibles again. Let's read again verse 13. 
We've seen for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy triumphs over judgment. That's the second thing James wants us to hear. But I wonder what first comes into your mind when you hear that. I'll tell you what first comes into my mind. What? It's so abrupt, isn't it? It feels so out of the blue. I mean, if you're driving on a standard and you're in fifth gear and then you drop down to third or second, what just happened? What's going on here? That's how I feel reading this text. But you know, James wants us to feel that way. He's used a, a literary technique that grammar geeks would get excited about. It's called a syndeton. It's when you intentionally omit a conjunction in order to make something stand out very abruptly. You notice the beginning of this phrase, rather the beginning of this verse has this little conjunction for that clearly connects that statement to what's gone before so we understand where that falls in the flow of his argument. But then mercy triumphs out of judgment, just comes out of nowhere and it's supposed to shake you and jar you and get you to start thinking and asking questions, why is this here? What is this doing? What's the place in his argument that this aphorism occupies? And I think as we begin to ask questions, we'll make some progress. I think a number of questions immediately rise to the surface, like whose mercy is this? What would it mean for mercy to triumph? And then whose judgment? And I think if we try to answer those questions, we'll make some good progress in applying this text to ourselves. But I think the best way to work is to work backwards through this verse because the easiest question to answer is the final one. Whose judgment is this? Clearly in the flow of this argument, the judgment he's speaking of is the judgment of God. That final future judgment, the culmination of our lives when God renders to us according to our works. Then what would it mean for mercy to triumph over judgment? And that little word triumph is a really fascinating word. It's literally a word that means boast. I'm reading from the English Standard Version to this morning. If you're reading from a New American, you're lucky because you have a little footnote in your Bible that tells you an alternative translation for this word triumph is boast against. Literally, the word means boast. Every other time it occurs, it literally means boast. It's an intensive form of Paul's favorite word for boast. If you read Paul's letters, you find him boasting of all kinds of things. He boasts in the cross. He boasts in his weaknesses. This is the intensive form of that verb that means to rise up and boast over someone in triumph. So in context, it's well-rendered triumph, and the picture is mercy rising up, winning out over judgment on the last day, and boasting about it. What does that mean? And to answer that, we've got to ask that final question in this little series, whose mercy is this? I suppose there's a couple options, aren't there? It could be your works of mercy. Maybe it's your works of mercy on the last day are like a crowd. They crowd around you and they stand up and they boast and triumph over God's judgment. But then what would that mean? See, the trouble I have with understanding the text that way is that I think it would fail to solve the problem that a close reading and sensitive conscience brings to this little statement. How many works and how sincere must I be to know I'm walking on the path of the law of liberty? How many of these good deeds do I need to accrue so that they'll stand up in my defense in the judgment and boast on my behalf? How many? How sincere? How pure? So we still haven't answered our question. 
My friend, I want to tell you that if you are trusting in the sincerity or the quantity of your merciful works to triumph over God's judgment in the last day, you've misplaced your confidence. Because there's only one mercy that can triumph over God's judgment. It's God's. God's mercy. This text is telling us that God's mercy triumphs over His own judgment. There's a way that God's mercy can triumph over His judgment. Okay, so linguistically we understand the text, but now what in the world does that mean? Because it sounds like, doesn't it, that God's having some kind of war inside Himself. Mercy and justice are fighting back and forth. Is that how we should understand this? And I think to satisfy that question, we just need to remember some things we've already learned about the book of James in the last few weeks. If you remember, Jesse has already told us that James is one of the very first books in the New Testament to be written, and so the readers of this book didn't have other New Testament books to consult with. They had the Hebrew Scriptures. And we've, been, we've learned that the original readers were Hellenistic Jews, Greek-speaking Jews spread about in the diaspora. Many of them, the majority of them probably, would have accessed the Old Testament through the Greek translation. And as they're reading the Old Testament in its Greek translation, they would have become very familiar with the two key words in this little statement, mercy and judgment. These two Greek words were picked up and used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for massive concepts. This first word, mercy, it's this Greek word, elios. It was used as the word to translate God's steadfast love, his chesed in the Old Testament. Usually in our English translations, we render it as something like steadfast love, loving kindness. It speaks of God's loyal love he extends to his people in his covenant, his covenant faithfulness, his unending, unbreakable, reliable, covenant, loyal love that he extends to his people. It's fundamental to the character of God and the way he behaves towards his covenant people. For example, in Exodus 34, when God reveals himself to Moses and wants to reveal this is the God that I am, we read in Exodus 34, 6, Yahweh passes before Moses and proclaimed, Yahweh, Yahweh, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. It's this word, mercy. This other key word in James 2.13, rendered judgment, it's a Greek word krisis, it can be rendered in a negative context, judgment, or in a more positive context, justice. And it's used in the translation of the Old Testament for the word mishpat, which has the exact same meaning. It's God's just judgment. God's just judgment. Throughout the Old Testament, we see that his justice, his judgment is foundational to his character and the way he acts in the world. Psalm 89, 14 says, righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne, foundational to the way God exercises his sovereign rule of his created world is his justice. He always acts according to his righteous justice. And the Old Testament is emphatic that these two elements, these two attributes of God's character and nature are in harmony together. Jeremiah 9, verse 23 and 24, a well-known text Reads, thus says Yahweh, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am Yahweh, exercising steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth, for in these things I delight, says Yahweh. 
His justice and His loving kindness, His mercy, His chesed, His elios, they're like two hands that He always uses in His actions. They're not, divi- they're not to be divided. They're not in competition. They are part of the oneness of God. And with all of that background, in the readers of James' letters, they come to this abrupt little aphorism, mercy triumphs over judgment, and they have to be asking, what? So how do we understand this? And the reason that I traced all of that Old Testament information was to bring you to this point. Those key words, the key words that James is picking up and using in this little aphorism are words that are constantly connected to God's covenant relationship with his people. They're covenant words. They're used to describe the way God acts towards his people in the context of a covenant relationship. He sends his son Jesus into the world. One of the last things that Jesus tells his apostles the night before he's betrayed and crucified is he makes patently clear what's about to happen. In the Last Supper, he tells them he's about to be crucified and then rise from the dead in order to found a new covenant by his blood. And when you come to Jesus Christ and you embrace him by faith, your life is united to him and you enter the new covenant. You enter a covenantal relationship with God and it's in that context and only in that context that God's mercy triumphs over his judgment on your behalf. Maybe the best way to picture this is to think of a courtroom. Imagine a courtroom and you are in trial in this little scene and God is your judge. And God's glory is the defendant. Every time that you sin, fundamentally your sin is against God. It's a belittling of God's glory. And God's glory in this trial is sitting there across from you as the offended party. God's justice is your prosecutor acting to lay up a mountain of, of evidence against you to demonstrate the reality of your guilt and that you deserve condemnation. Well, in order for God to act coherently in accord with his own nature, he's gonna act in a fully just way in accordance with what his justice demands. And he's going to act to vindicate his own glory. And so in order to vindicate his glory and satisfy his own demands for justice, he will condemn you. Justly so. That's the unmerciful judgment. It's not an unjust judgment, it's a perfectly righteous judgment that God exercises to satisfy his own nature and to vindicate his glory. You will be condemned because you've sinned against a holy God. But if you come to God through Jesus Christ, If you enter through Jesus Christ the door with two empty hands of repentant faith and you embrace Him, your life is united to Him and you enter into a covenant relationship with God and for every covenant member, when you come into that courtroom, God's mercy rushes to your behalf and stands as your defender. Now, God's mercy in this trial presents the evidence of the blood of Christ shed on your behalf to satisfy the just demands of God's law. He shows the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ accounted to you so that you stand blameless before God. And now, God's justice is satisfied. God's glory has been vindicated. Punishment has been meted for your your sin, but it's landed on your mediator, Jesus Christ. God's justice can sit down, not because he's been defeated, but satisfied 
that God's glory has been vindicated through your substitute, Jesus Christ. And when that happens, then God's mercy on your side can stand up and boast that a triumph has happened. You receive not the justice you deserve, but the mercy of God. This is the way God's mercy triumphs over judgment, only when you come into the new covenant through Christ. So maybe if we come full circle, we ask the question, we enter this text asking, how much, how many merciful deeds do I need to do to feel confident that I'm on the law of liberty? Maybe you now ask, how many deeds of mercy do I need to do in order to know that mercy is my defendant? My friend, you're asking the wrong question. You're looking to the wrong mercy. To get God's mercy to come to your defense, you must come to Christ. There's not some count to hit, some threshold to cross. There's a covenant to enter, and you enter it through Christ. You enter it by coming to the end of yourself, recognizing you're bankrupt and your need of a Savior. And when you come to Christ, you're united to Him. God's mercy rushes to your defense. His justice is satisfied. You're, you are deluged with God's mercy, and the mercy of God stands at your side, standing in boastful triumph. You've been pardoned. You know, thinking about God's mercy standing up and boasting in a triumph achieved for you reminds me of some of the ways that other saviors that God gave to his people in the Old Testament would stand and boast of the victories they'd wrought. You know, the book of Judges tells us about a period in Israel's history in which they were harassed by various enemies who sought their destruction and God would raise up temporary deliverers, saviors, would save them from those who wanted to destroy them. Perhaps the most famous is named Samson and in Judges chapter 15 we read of an interesting story where he delivered the Israelites from the Philistines who sought their destruction. In verse 15 we read that when Samson came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. And then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that has caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey, and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck a thousand men, and delivered Israel from those who would destroy them. And upon achieving this victory, he stood up and boasted in triumph. The jawbone of a donkey heaps upon heaps. With the jawbone of a donkey I have struck a thousand men. And as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. Which, by the way, is the original mic drop. And my friend, I imagine that most of you don't have armed men chasing you, seeking your destruction. But if you believe that the word of God is true, then the reality of your life is you have a far more deadly enemy. You have your own sin who has not a thousand ways of destroying you, but 10,000, 10 times 1,000. All the ways that you have violated God's law, and moreover, all the ways you have failed to fulfill your obligations to the God who made you, to love Him with all your heart, to love your neighbor as yourself, to visit the widow and orphan, to exercise your faith without favoritism. There's 10,000, 10 times 1,000 ways that your sin stands to condemn you. You ought to be you ought to receive justice, wrathful vengeance for your sin against God. 
But you have a Savior who is so infinitely greater than Samson. You have a Savior who is the God-man Himself, who stands between you and the justice you deserve, and in your place satisfies God's justice, satisfies all the demands of God's law on your behalf, so that having sat down God's justice, His mercy can stand on your behalf and boast in triumph and look at you and say, this one is mine. A friend, that's your confidence. That's your confidence that you belong to the living God. That's your confidence that you have received mercy. It's not fundamentally how many works of mercy have I done, how sincere is my heart. Fundamentally, your confidence is that in Christ, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. In Christ, your wrath is satisfied. In Christ, your judgment is removed. In Christ, you are placed in a fully righteous standing before God. In Christ, in Christ, in Christ. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And so you walk on this path of the law of liberty, not with this question hanging over your head, how much, how sincere, have I done enough? It's called the law of liberty. Christ has satisfied your wrath. He set you free. And the question you get to ask now is just what's next? What is the next thing I can do to honor, to please, to glorify the God who loved me and gave His mercy to me? Because in Christ, God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Let's pray together. Our Father, we're so thankful for this reality that you have made a way in which you can satisfy your justice and then shower us with your mercy. So God, we do ask that you would refresh our souls, give us a greater desire to love you because of this indescribable love that you have given to us. Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our, our hearts to behold your glory and your gospel more clearly and to cling tightly to you. Lord, give us zeal to live lives that honor you. Give us freedom. Give us hearts not burdened by the guilt of our sin, but delighting in our Savior and desiring holiness to put off our remaining sin and to live lives that honor you. We pray this all in the name of your Son. Amen. You have been listening to Emmanuel. You can find more resources like this at ibcva.com. Here is a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, ibcva.com. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. We're located in Northern Virginia, and for more information about when and where we worship, check out our church website. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.